0: I'm Michael Laurie, and you're listening to the Ulster Rugby Roundup.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Ulster Rugby Roundup's World Cup Special, brought to you in association with Ruisuiuma, Victoria Square, Belfast, and Stokers Nationwide. Ireland's second World Cup
0: game is over. Thank goodness. Probably it didn't exactly go to plan, but we do have Jonathan Bradley on the line with us from Japan. Hello, Jonathan.
1: Hi, Gareth.
0: How's it gone? Uh, reasonable. Uh, what about yourself after watching Japan beating Ireland in nineteen
1: twelve? I'll say mixed. I think mixed <laughs> is fair. It was obviously it was an incredible occasion, like genuinely one of the uh, most incredible, incredible games that I've ever been at. Obviously terrible for Ireland, we're all going to have to uh, probably regroup a little bit think, and they can move on to Russia, but the day in itself, the occasion, the occasion in itself was definitely incredible.
0: Well, was first of all, before we get into dissecting the performance or lack of, what was it like just being there at the home nation playing, getting arguably their biggest ever win?
1: Yeah, like at one point I I had headphones in at about uh, probably about half an hour and I was just trying to hear something. And whenever you had headphones in, it was still just incredibly loud. You take the headphones out and you're just sort of hit by this wall of noise. It's like it's something pretty different to even the noise that you would get, say, on a big day, because it's a different kind of sound. Does that make sense? Like. One of our colleagues sort of compared it to Beatlemania. Somebody else was talking about it being like a Take That concert. And it is that kind of like hysteria, if that makes sense. Just every time something is going right for the hosts, um, you're hit by this sort of wall of sound that you wouldn't really be used to. And if, if you were there completely neutral, not as somebody who's day-to-day job is affected by <laughs> how well or not well out on their plan. Um, it would have been just an absolutely unforgettable, positive occasion to have witnessed what, as you say, was just an incredible day for the hosts.
0: So while that side of it was unforgettable, equally, the result itself will be unforgettable for anybody who was there, anybody who watched it on TV. What are we talking in significance of uh, a World Cup upsets here? Well, I mean, it's the first
1: time that Ireland have lost a pool game since 2007. It's the first time Ireland have ever lost a pool game to tier two opposition. And I know that's not a fair tag for Japan, given that they're eighth in the world. They're above the likes of Scotland, above the likes of Italy. But really, if you're thinking about it, to go back in terms of that level of upset that Ireland have faced you're probably going back to 2013 and Douglas Kidney's last game in charge that last game of the Six Nations when they lost Italy like I don't think you can put the defeat to Argentina in 2015 up there in terms of shocks I really don't like mm-hmm. it was a uh, 21 point spread um, given by the bookies so they're very very rarely wrong so it's a huge huge upset And one that Ireland haven't seen the likes of for, I think personally, six and a half years.
0: Yeah, and yet it started well. Ireland were 12-3 up, a couple of tries, all looked to be going to plan.
1: Well, that's the thing. If we were talking about the ways that Ireland were going to impose themselves on this game, you would have said set-piece. The first seven line-outs just went to plan. You would have said trying to find space in Pine, they got two tries and could have had two more off kicks from Jack Cardi in behind so yeah everything was going absolutely to plan and then about the half hour mark I don't know what it felt for you watching it on TV but to be in the stadium it felt like on the half hour mark Ireland were just drained like they looked tired at a point in the game where I can never really remember them in certainly in the days of professionalism where they looked that tired that early and I think it it poses big questions about the team selection for me, certainly it really doesn't. Like This isn't being Captain Hindsson or anything, I think we question the team selection um, in the build-up, just talking about how Ireland basically asked all these guys to go again, especially Rory Best off the back of 80 minutes, and looking at it now, it certainly seems like it was a big mistake.
0: Mm-hmm. Like what was that what you put do you just put this down to tiredness because as you say after half an hour it was as if a switch had been flicked on the game Ireland were had been cruising and from then on Japan absolutely dominated well Ireland didn't score for the last hour of the match
1: which is absolutely incredible and like this is an Ireland team that we've become accustomed to seeing winning from winning positions if that makes sense Ireland have won 28 games in a row where they've led at half time now the turning point for me Mm. in the match came before that uh, probably about the half hour mark Michael Leach comes on sort of re-energises the crowd then at that point you have a penalty then you have a point of the match where Jack Cardi gets smashed by Luke Thompson and I haven't watched it back yet but I think Leach um, still get the scrum because it's a it judge should be knocked on the tackle. Japan win the scrum against the head, go on to score another penalty off that turnover. Jack Cardy then kicks the uh, kicks the restart dead and Japan attack again and all of a sudden from a position where Ireland had a scrum had their own scrum, just outside uh, Japan's twenty two, yeah. and it looks like they're gonna score again and take that into half time. Instead what we have is Ireland looking really Really
2: relieved that uh showed a he was incredible. Otherwise, his uh grubber kick three yeah,
1: and just points into touch it, uh, to bring in the half. And like that felt like a let off for us, <laughs> they were still ahead at half time, which was like as I say, on the 32 33 minute mark when they had that scrum,
2: yeah,
1: uh, just an absolutely incredible turnaround in the last sort of seven minutes of yeah. that half.
0: Did you not think at half time then? Once they got to time, did you not have the feeling, right, we've got to time, it's OK, things are going to be all right? I was thinking
1: bench. I don't, I don't, again, I don't know about you. I was thinking you have to bring on your bench early because your team's flagging. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about how this squad has the greatest depth in Irish rugby history going to World Cup. They don't have the star names, they have no seven, but they're meant to have more depth, 1-31. to 31. I would have went to the bench earlier, uh, but at the same time, I don't think the bench made too much of an impact when they did get on. So, mm. you know, maybe that's maybe that becomes a bit of a moot point. But, like, I thought Carberry started pretty well when he came on. But uh, again, like, he flagged. Tyke Byrne, I thought, he made an impact when he came on. Dave Kukoy made an impact when he came on. Andrew Porter made an impact when he came on. But then it was the same sort of situation. Like, these guys made an impact for 10 minutes, and then the mistakes started to come in.
0: Well, what did the coaching staff and the players have to say about it all afterwards?
1: They were all just very respectful towards Japan, like, which is what I would have expected. You know, people. I think people are going to compare it to 2015 and South Africa, rightly so. Like, we've been talking about this sort of just over dinner tonight and which is a bigger shock, which is a more significant result. For me, Japan beating South Africa was a far bigger shock. But this is a far more significant result in mm-hmm. the context of the fact that it could still lead to a quarterfinal place. It should, now it should lead to a quarterfinal place.
0: Yeah. We'll talk about Andy that again and in there, the-
1: After the South Africa defeat came out and basically said they'd the nation. You're never going to get that from Joe Schmidt because the last thing they will have wanted is accusations that they treated this game lightly. We had Jimmy Joseph from Japan saying that you know, they have been preparing for this game for a year, two years, and then eventually stretched out to three years. And then sort of with a an knowing wink said, Ireland have been preparing for this game since Monday. <laughs> uh, Luke Thompson, the uh, the ageless 38-year-old lock, mm-hmm. who uh, won a, a key line-out of uh, off a Roy Best throw, said that um, pretty much us, essentially, in the Irish media had been looking ahead to South Africa which I suppose all of us were guilty of like I know I've written that it was Mm -hmm. going to be South Africa in the quarterfinal so the last thing that Ireland will have wanted to do was sort of fan those flames of the idea that they've been uh, looking beyond this game by Mm. saying that it was an embarrassment or anything like that they were always going to come out and say look Japan are a good team they've Mm. given tier 1 sides a decent crack of late they haven't beat them but they've given them a crack look this really is a double edged sword because you do have to say Japan were absolutely fantastic yeah uh, the performance of those World Cups so far without a doubt
0: what was it that was? That yeah. what did they what did they do well what was it that particularly won the game for them
1: just the pace that they play out is incredible like mm-hmm. I was on the training platform in Shizuka today and I sort of saying it wasn't that hot and then the stadiums like built into this sort of forest up a big massive hill and I walked up that hill and like the heat once you did sort of any sort of physical exertion really was taking your breath away so they dealt with the conditions incredibly to play at the tempo that they did whenever they sort of had that purple patch say 30 minutes to 40 minutes I still didn't think they were going to be able to maintain that for 80 minutes Mm -hmm. but they did um. The main thing for me I suppose was just the work at the breakdown. Like it's very easy to say at this point that Allen's Don Levy, but he I do think and again, not trying to come at this with hindsight. Like I think I've been saying pretty much since March how much of a miss Don Levy was gonna be. They really missed him at the breakdown. To me the only times Arlene like, had any purchase at the breakdown was when they were able to affect the choke tackle. If Japan got to grind and recycled quickly, um, there really was like I don't think Josh Van der Flyer had a terrible game, but they just didn't have the presence to break down. No Peter Mahoney got on the wrong side of the referee. It looked like to me again, don't know what it looked like to you guys on TV. To me, it looked like getting on the wrong side of the referee early, and that sort of nullified his presence there. Mm-hmm. Japan were just able to play at the tempo that they wanted, which is pretty much the one thing that we would have said Ireland had to avoid.
0: Were there any positives for Jewish Schmidt to take from it? <laughs> it seems a bit mad to, to ask that I suppose after such an upset, but might bound to have been somebody James Ryan did himself a bit of justice again.
1: I, like, James Ryan is incredible, but like he can't do it all by himself. Like he was speaking in the mix of and afterwards and he just seemed he seemed devastated, it's genuinely devastated because like this is somebody who doesn't lose rugby mm-hmm. games. And that's gonna be the interesting thing like how a guy like that finds his because this is this, this is the most devastating day of his career. Essentially, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um I thought James Ryan was good. As I say, I haven't watched it back yet and I need to watch it back before I do any more on it. But um I thought Gary Ringrose played well, I thought Chris Farrell had a good start. Jack Hardy had a good start and then it all much like Ireland just sort of went awry on him. Um mm. Thought it was Conor Murray's worst game for a while. CJ, I hate to put it all on CJ when Ireland don't dominate the collisions, but when that happens, he does look he doesn't look effective when Ireland aren't winning collisions. Basically, yeah. it's not fair to put it all on him as the number eight and one of the more physical players. But um, I didn't think he was that effective. The front row just had a bad game. Asked to do it all again six days later. You know that. Uh, scrum one against the head the scrum penalty one against the head when basically Ireland were just trying to milk a penalty of their own and kept it in there too long. Um mm-hmm. they got very high, Japan got under them. I didn't think they had a good game. As I say, the bench, you know, the journal armor intercept not great. Keith Earl's probably had a good start and did incredibly well to she is back and stop. up with it tonight in the bonus point unbel- or sorry, the losing bonus point unbelievably.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um Jacob was just well marshalled throughout and um, didn't get the ball enough but it like um, Japan kept him in check so, like I do think and I'm saying this off the back of like having gone to a lot of Japan press conferences this week and sort of been around um, like I said before the Japan are right in the centre of Hamamatsu whereas mm-hmm. Arnold are out in the sticks in the middle of nowhere so you've got a far greater sense of the mood in the Japanese camp, rather than the Irish camp, this week, but mm. like, they've been confident all week and mm. they've backed it up. Mm. And even you know, at the end of the day, the guy that scored the winning try wasn't in the twenty-three up until just prior to kick-off. Mm. Like Fukuoka, Fukuoka I, I believe we're told it's not pronounced. I mean, pronouncing it wrong the whole way through this podcast, but that's what we're told is how it's said. Is um, one of the best players, probably right up there with Murphy, um, who obviously went off incredibly, and Japan got better when he did. Mm. But Fukukawa um, had been ruled out of this game; had actually been pretty much ruled out until the Scotland game. Tony Brown said during the week that he was uh, touch and go this week, which was news to everybody. He slipped onto the bench there fairly unnoticed about uh, 50 minutes before kickoff. Whenever the team sheet came out. I think i try, so I think it's going like
2: to uh, this week. They
0: really on. Yeah. Well, just finally, before we put this game to bed and uh, never talk about it again, I was, looking yeah. at the, I was looking at the permutations today about what this exactly means. So basically, if Ireland can get nine points from their last two games, they're assured at least to finish definitely ahead of Scotland, regardless of what Scotland managed to do. And there's quite likely, it could well be a playoff, basically in that last game between Japan and Scotland for the the progression to the quarterfinals. Where whether Ireland finish first or second is still very much uh, uncertain. What what way do you see this panning out now?
1: I think if Ireland don't get ten points in these two games, then they deserve everything they get. <laughs> yeah. I
2: think this is a terrible result for.
1: Scotland, and I think more than anything else, the negative impact for the chances of Ireland progressing deeper into this World Cup rather than just progressing to the quarterfinals because once they beat Scotland, they were in the quarterfinals, Mm -hmm. barring disaster is the fact that they're now going to have to play the likes of Johnny Sexton against Samoa, where we probably expected heavy rotation in these two games with the fact that the job was done. Now this Russia game off a four-day turnaround requires far more attention. Attention is the wrong word because they're always going to say they're focused on Russia, whatever, blah, 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 blah. But it now requires a far stronger team selection. And the issue is that you've already sent out most of your first choice 15 for two weeks in a row. So now what do you do? It's going to be a fascinating team selection over the next two weeks. Yeah. It really, really is. As much as... Any combination of Irons 31 players should be able to beat Russia. Now all eyes are on you. You kind of mm-hmm. need to make a statement.
0: Yeah. Moreover than that, you can't just win the game now. You need the five points. Mm-hmm.
1: And then Samoa is trickier again. We talked about how given a few of the Samoan tackles against Russia, and just given what I saw of the pitch in the of watching Canada against Italy, how you wouldn't want to be risking the likes of Johnny Saxon or whomever on that pitch. Now there's a very real chance that you
0: have to. Mm-hmm, yeah. Not a, not a great day, uh, all, all in all, to say the least. So let's just put it to bed and end it there. And we will be back on Tuesday after the team is announced what's looking like it could be a very interesting team selection for the Russia game. So we'll talk to the then, Jonathan. Thank you very much.
1: No problem, guys. Talk right to you then. You're listening to the Ulster Rugby Roundup's World Cup Special. Brought to you in association with Remus Ewell, Victoria Square Belfast and Stalkers Nationwide.
0: So on to the tonic of Ulster Rugby. Uh, thank goodness for Ulster Rugby who got their season up and running on Friday evening with a 38-14 win over Ospreys. At the game was Adam McHandry who joins us on the line now. Hello Adam. Hey guys. So that was presumably a much easier watch than Ireland were on Saturday morning well for the first minutes of the game it wasn't quite (laughs) such an easy watch Uh, we were sort of sitting there wondering what exactly had happened between pre-season
3: and this game because Ulster came out as if they thought they were going to walk over the Ospreys and the Ospreys gave a bit of a rude awakening but after that yeah you know I was actually really impressed by Ulster on Friday night I thought I thought they settled into the game well after that terrible start defensively. I thought they were really, really strong. This was exactly the start they would have been wanting as well. Especially given you know they have a lot of guys back in the squad that they maybe thought would be at the World Cup mm-hmm. and, and needing to get off to to a big start, especially at home as well. And what's going to be a really tricky conference to put 38 points on a team that is generally quite good defensively. In the Ospreys, and yeah. to limit them to no points in the second half and six points after the eighth minute, that's mm-hmm. a that's a really good return from uh, from Dan McFarlane's side, and I think they'll be sitting here feeling pretty good about their mm-hmm. day's work because to just you always have that little bit of. Uh, Anxiety about the first game—you never know how a team's gonna gonna come out of the blocks after preseason, regardless of how well or how badly it's gone. Mm. And again, for those first eight minutes, you maybe thought has preseason been completely misleading. But once they settled in, they're absolutely fine, and it looked like a really good team performance out
0: there. Especially given the the injury problems the squad had, and then losing Jordy Murphy just uh, shortly before kickoff. Um, It was uh, particularly pleasing in in that respect. Exactly. You know, whenever you saw that Stuart McCoskey was going to be
3: missing the game, someone who didn't expect to be out Mm -hmm. uh, because we we had no
0: indication that he was a risk. Do we know what uh, the problem was with Stuart? It's been described as a lower limb injury. It's the same as Will Addison. These lower limb injuries are serious these days.
3: Well, you know what? I think this is probably uh, it's something that um, American sports teams do a lot more where you, you don't actually say what the injury is. Yeah. So, lower, lower limb can is probably anything
0: from waist really, down, basically. You know,
3: waist down.
2: Yeah.
3: But it's, it's a way of basically getting around uh, naming
2: an injury. You, know, you just yeah. say it's lower limb so people have an indication of whereabouts it is but you're not giving away too much mm-hmm. whenever the player returns. So McCluskey's day-to-day at the moment, they're sort of addressing it uh, ahead of the South African
3: trip, whether they're going to take him or not, mm-hmm. whether he's available for uh, one game or both of them, or maybe even neither of them. But uh, at the moment, it's looking like he could miss the South African trip. We'll just have to see yeah.
2: uh, how he holds up in training
0: early next week. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Craig Gilroy was back on the pitch, playing a first competitive game for, what, about 11 months? Two tries, couldn't have gone much better for him. I think
3: he'll be absolutely delighted to get on the, on the try scoring sheet again, because one of those things when you come back from injury is you're just not sure how your body's going to hold up. You can say you're 100% as much as you want, you can say you're ready to go. But I'm sure whenever you take to the pitch, there's always that little bit of nagging doubt in the back of your mind that makes you think, oh, am
2: I really? Mm -hmm. But no, he looked assured. He looked as confident as he ever did. I think the most pleasing thing for fans will be that he was just going at it the way he went before he got injured. You know, he was stepping guys. He was showing off his pace in what was a really, really good back three Uh, on Friday night. I thought Matt Thalass and Robert Little beside him were excellent. Mm -hmm. And then just... Billy Burns, the skill to be able to put those on a plate for Gilroy uh, was absolutely incredible. And
3: then we'll talk about Burns in a second. But Gilroy, you know, he still has to be there. He still has to make the read. He still has to be calling for the ball out in the wing. And both times he realised that there was a mismatch where the offspring just got a little bit too narrow. He got his opposite man turned around and not really aware of where the ball was coming from. And then he just made the run perfectly to get on the end of Burns' kicks. So I, I think Gilroy will be delighted with being back. And as Dan McFarland said in post-match, you know, that back three for Ulster, you've got to mark those guys. You've got to be aware of where they are, are at all times because they're really dangerous. Um, and I think even just the name Craig Gilroy will give defenders a lot of pause for thought because you know that he can turn you in the phone box and he will certainly be uh, be among the, the top track scorers this year if he
0: keeps up this form. Yeah, yesterday we t- we talked about the new signings all summer, but we probably didn't really mention Craig Gilroy, who had sealed the cliche, is not it? But uh, having him back, as you say, just you can't really overestimate how much of a boost that is for for Ulster, particularly okay, whenever they're missing. Stock at that back three. Ul- Ulster aren't short of players in the back three. I mean, whenever you consider that Rob Balakum didn't play, Angus Kernahan didn't play. Louie Ludic was on the bench, mm-hmm. Jacob Stockfield's out in Japan at the World Cup, and you still have three guys in, Matt Thaddeus, who is only a few years removed from being the second top scorer in Super Rugby, Craig
3: Gilroy, who has been a perennial try scorer his entire career, and Robert Little, who, if you give him a run of games in the senior team, will surely start finding the try line with more regularity as the season goes on, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's a huge amount of talent that Ulster have in the back three alone. Yeah. I think it's really a, a place with a lot of strength and depth for Ulster. Mm. And somewhere that they can really rotate a few guys, see what combinations they have, and they're really not going to lose much. But certainly, mm. if so they kept rolling out those three that started on Friday night, i uh,
2: think they're doing pretty well because <laughs> yeah. you look at Matt Faddis and Rob Little both making on average more than six and a half metres per carry. Uh, Faddis led the backs and metres gained.
3: Little uh, was just behind him as well. There was just so much chemistry between that back three and it's a case of um, you could rotate those guys but they played so well
0: I don't think you'll want to change too much. hmm so you mentioned him uh, a few minutes ago there, Billy Burns, who has probably taken his fair share, more than his fair share of flack of during his time at Ulster so far, but a very positive performance. But last year, Billy Burns admi- admitted himself that he didn't hit the heights that he wanted to, and he was dealt a bit of a rough hand because he came in late, a bit like Dan
2: McFarland. He had to learn everything very quickly. He wasn't given too much time to bed in and settle down in the school and um, and you see him getting better as the year
3: Pre-season, work through the routines, work through the patterns, get bedded in was what Dan McFarlane wants to do this year, and also Dwayne Peel and Jared Payne in that back line, and really establish himself as the ten. And I think what you also saw quite well too was Burns gave you that consistency, maybe not so so much flashy in the first uh, in the first thirty minutes that he was on. But he just gave you that consistency and attack, he let the guys outside him do the work, and then whenever he saw the kicks to the corner he made them. But then Michael Lowry comes on, and he's quick as a flash, he's a, he's a real whippet in that back line, and he just terrorises slowing defences. And whenever they're getting tired, he just brings that little bit extra bit of energy that can keep defences on their toes and can really open up gaps uh, whenever the game's ticking down. So. There's a really good opportunity out for Ulster to explore You know, having that consistency from the start, letting Burns pull the strings for the first maybe 60 minutes, and then if they need some impetus from the bench, bring on Michael Lowry, let him get get running in that back line, let him try and add some energy that has maybe tailed off a bit. And there's a, there's a really good strategy there that they can maybe pursue as the season goes on.
2: I really like that that transition as the second half went on
0: mm-hmm. Matt saying you mentioned him plenty there got a debut try very good performance what about the the other debutants? yeah a bit, a bit of a quieter night for uh, Jack McGrath and Sam Carter Ulster are a team that don't really use their props for big long busting carries
3: like other teams do so I know that that's just a, a tactical thing is it's not mm-hmm. uh, like we're trying to Ulster trying to hide the players or anything like that it, it is a tactical thing um, so the stats suggest that Jack McGrath had, uh, had quite a quiet night but you look at defensively defensively he made 12 tackles in the game um, which is showing up big for a prop um, and I think that's a, that's a real strength of his game showing that he can do it on the defensive side and of course we know how good he is at scrummaging we know how good he is um uh, in the tight and he, he really terrorised Tom Bosa for long parts of the game so it was a solid start for McGrath I think that's what we can say about him he, uh, he'll he get better as the season goes on you know he will because now he's in with Ulster very similar to Burns last year You know he hasn't had a pre-season with Ulster to bed in, he's been away with Ireland and now he's, uh, he's been dropped back into the Ulster squad and expected to step up I think once he's given a bit more time to get used to the systems, get used to to what Ulster are trying to do, I think he'll only get better and better as time goes on. Sam Carter, again, a bit quieter than than Thaddeus was. Uh, He came up big in the line-out a few times and, again, popped up here and there. Uh, He's someone who, again, I, I would expect to to step up as, as the season goes on you've got to remember he's played a lot of rugby too he's coming off a Super Rugby season where the Brumbies got all the way to the, super, uh, to the Super Rugby final so he's played a lot of rugby but he's in there for his leadership and what he can bring in terms of bringing this squad on while some other big names are away at the World Cup so overall yeah McGran and uh, Carter had less st- stated games than uh, Farris did a solid start they are part of a pack effort that I thought was uh, was very strong for the opening game of the
0: season so overall uh, a very good night for Ulster all we need now is to get the floodlights working and everything will be good <laughs> you know we, we were having this discussion after the game trying to work out are you allowed to play with floodlights on or off or not and <laughs> um, Matt Fallis said well the last time I did it was in an under 13 game back in New Zealand and we just went ahead anyway so uh, <laughs> you might as well just get on with wine, you know? exactly so up next for Ulster then of course is the trip to South Africa and the first game is the Cheetahs next Saturday at 5.15 so we will have live coverage of that uh, with the blog on the website and before that we'll be back with the, the podcast to chat through a proper preview of that game so for now thank you very much for that Adam we do appreciate it and here's to another couple of wins for Ulster and South Africa always so
1: You've been listening to the Ulster Rugby Roundup's World Cup Special, brought to you in association with Wimus Urum, Victoria Square Belfast and Stockists Nationwide.